You can listen to The Professional Left on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or at our website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, where you can also contribute to this podcast. There's a PayPal button at our website, or you can mail us a letter and or contribution at P.O. Box 9133, Springfield, Illinois, 62791. This is the podcast for July 10th, 2015. It's not safe for work. Recorded live from the rope line at the Chuck Todd Mobius Strip Club, it's the professional left with Drift Glass and Blue Gal. Hey, Drift Glass. Hey, Blue Gal. <laughs> Mobius Strip. Does everybody know what a Mobius Strip is? I do. It's I such do. a Mensa thing. Yeah, well, <laughs> I'm hoping it's... Um, it's where you take... I mean, you can do it with anything, but a strip of paper, and rather than tape it together in a circle, you twist it once. Mm-hmm. And so the strip of paper has no inside or outside. It's all one side that just continues. Mm -hmm. And that was Chuck Todd's interview with Ted Cruz last week. It it really was. (laughs) It just, it was, it was, I think Chuck Todd thought if he just asked them that question one more time, that he was going to catch him. And he'd he'd, he'd trap them, he'd trap them into answer. He he asked the same question literally six times. Which is, uh, what do you do about the 11 million immigrants who are here undocumented right now? And, and after the first time he asked it, it became abundantly clear. It should have been abundantly clear to anybody before Ted Cruz opened his mouth. Mm-hmm. That Ted Cruz had no intention whatsoever of answering that question. Right. That every time he asked, it was like a Republican debate. Every, you know, it was like uh, Sarah Palin. Whatever question you ask her, she has a talking point that is marginally related to it. And she's mm-hmm. going to just read that. Mm-hmm. And that's what Ted Cruz did. And rather than adapt to the situation uh, and act like, you know, a journalist, mm-hmm. uh, a high school newspaper reporter would have done a better job than this. Um, Chuck Todd just acted like the most punch drunk stumble bum. Um, he just swinging. The, he just kept making the swing the, the same punch and missing over and over again. Just mm-hmm. one air-based roundhouse into nothing over and over again. And Ted Cruz just sort of walked around him and punched him in the face every time. And the interview ended with, okay, tell us about your childhood, Ted. Well, you yeah. know, I was I was born a poor child. <laughs> poor black child. <laughs> and I grew up uh, on the margins. Of, he's talked about what a, what an arrogant young man he used to be back uh-huh. in the Is he still wearing his Harvard uh, <laughs> class ring? Uh, that was not... No, at the interview? Fun. Okay. No, but it was it was how much he's learned because he used to be an arrogant cock uh, during, mm-hmm. the, uh, during the olden days. Yeah. Um, because he was so good at everything and, mm-hmm. had, and and everything was going great for him. So he, had, he was kind of swaggery and dickish. And then he learned a valuable lesson, as we all do during during episodes of Scooby-Doo. And... He became the the humble public servant you see before him today, and that was the whole interview. It was uh, this is a presidential candidate on the premier public interest slash political show in America, being interviewed by the person that NBC chose among all three hundred million other Americans to steer that ship, acting like a a, a, a footstool, just mm-hmm. just just one the same question over and over again, which any puppet could have done and then handing the interview over to, to ted cruz to talk about what an awesome person he is and then we're out of time sorry we well, and i want to talk about for a minute the divide over immigration just briefly yeah, yeah because there really are two groups of people in america really <laughs> just the two <laughs> when it comes to immigration i think there are yeah 
There are people who live in cities who encounter immigrants every single day. Mm-hmm. I mean, when, and when I say immigrants, I mean, um, I don't, I don't mean uh, British Americans. Right. <laughs> I mean, they encounter people who do not have English as their first language. Yeah. Uh, and Chuck Todd is one of those people. You know, if if he has lunch brought in to the NBC offices, it's delivered by an immigrant. Yes. And when he puts his mom up at a Manhattan hotel so he doesn't have to deal with her in the morning. Yes. She has clean sheets on her bed because of an immigrant. Exactly. Exactly. And so the 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 group of especially media elites, I mean in DC and New York. Uh-huh know that these cities run on immigrants. Can I, I, I don't want to derail this. I want to expand that one little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, run on immigrants and in D.C., gay staffers, which yeah, we've talked about before. Thing. Same dynamic. Exactly. Yeah, same dynamic. It is. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's the elephant in the GOP room yeah. that we all know this is here. Mm-hmm. And this is what puts them in common with, I mean, you know, back when I was living in Chicago, um, uh, Devon Avenue, yeah, was just you know you you were uh, elbow to elbow with people who were from a hundred different countries every damn day, mm-hmm. and you got along fine. Everybody found a way to live together, and there are people who are who have internalized that, and Chuck Todd's one of them. Yeah, and then there's the other half of America, which which doesn't know any black people, let alone any immigrants. All right. And immigrants are out to kill us. And one immigrant kills a lady in in San Francisco, and it's the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and of course, Fox News has lunches delivered by immigrants every day. Sure. But sure. turns right around and starts talking about, are you worried that a sanctuary city is going to kill your children? Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's the, the debate we have. And... Uh, our immigration policy, our drug policy, our prison policy, all of it is based on racism. Yeah. Our voting policy. Our voting policy. Our district is based policy. On, on white supremacy and racism and what we have finally, what has finally been pointed out to us in a way that is undeniable is that white supremacy kills people. Yeah. And it's still here. The ultimate goal of white supremacy is to kill the other. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's to use the other. And when the other or steps out of them. line, and when the other starts <laughs> objecting to it, to yeah. eliminate the other. Yeah, elimination. Yeah. yeah. And, just, and uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates has been talking about that a lot. Uh, you know, the destruction of the black body yeah. is is what it, what white supremacy is about. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's what Ted Cruz doesn't want to talk about. No. So, well, and Chuck uh, Todd, is, and he's not going to talk about it. No. And that's, that's the constant subtext that... Um, I get, I was on the, uh, the, the Nicole Sandler show yesterday mm-hmm. and one of the, um, subtexts, one of the things we talked about was sort of the, something, you know, indignant and outrageous that happened, um, to this reporter uh, that Donald Trump was berating. Oh, the, the woman from NBC who yeah. interviewed him yeah. and was treated like an, in, an unpaid intern. And you and I, basically. Talked, you and yeah. I talked about this, too. And, and there, there are two distinct points of view. There's the, there's the normal, sane, healthy point of view, which, first <laughs> of all, she should never have been in that interview. She was way out of her depth. 
and and really didn't know how to handle someone who was going to c- come on like a charging bullshit artist like Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. But he you know dismissed her <clears throat> and basically called her stupid and mocked her and treated her like a child, like an intern. Um, you and I would watch that and go, God, what a horrible person. What a fucking awful man. I mean, Jesus Christ, how could you look at this and, and see anything but a blowhard asshole? Well, and I think he walked away from that interview thinking he was being nice to her. Because he was training her this, uh, on this, how to give an interview to a guy like me. And, the, and she this, just needs a little boost up, you know? The, well, I mean, I'm sure she'll be a classy lady someday. Yeah, and that's the second audience. Because Donald <laughs> Trump is yeah. not talking to you or me. Right. Donald Trump is not talking to anybody on the left. Donald Trump is talking to Crazy Uncle Liberty. Mm-hmm. What Crazy Uncle Liberty saw was a powerful, great man who's wealthy, full of classy, <laughs> putting the, this liberal bitch He's in giving her place. a little boost up with a little training. So no, he had to put her, her in her place. Her job, you know? <clears throat> he had to put this bitch in her place. You know, she <laughs> stepped out of line. For that, yes. And she needed to be shown side. what to do. She needed to be, you know, step back, lady. You know what we're dealing with here. And Crazy Uncle Liberty soaks that shit up with a biscuit. Loves that shit. Loves seeing the the feeble liberal, the, especially the feeble uh, feeble uppy uppity lady liberal, being put in her place, and that's who he's talking to. That's why he's well, in, and, and it's interesting that Katie Couric, who's had a lot more experience with interviewing people than U.S. senators mm-hmm. than Katie Tour does, uh, and Katie Couric talked with Ted Cruz about a marriage equality, and Ted Cruz tried to turn it on her and say. Yeah, well, Katie, I'm sure you disagree with me mm-hmm. about marriage equality, you know, and I'm sure you have a very different opinion about family and you know, traditional family than I do. Mm-hmm. And she said to him, uh, well, what I think about marriage equality really doesn't matter because I'm conducting this interview. Exactly. And I will, I'll, but I can add that 69% of the American people think this ruling is okay. Mm-hmm. And they can live with it. Mm-hmm. And she just took him back, took it back. You know, don't, don't try to put this on me. Mm-hmm. Drift class, I don't really want to talk about Donald Trump. I'm right, there. I'm right there with you. I'm right there with you. There's- Except, I think uh, the Democratic Party sent out an email to everyone, the Demo- DNC War Room, whatever, email today. Mm-hmm. And they did something that I was going to bring up on the podcast anyway, which is one should never mention Donald Trump's name these days without preceding it with GOP frontrunner. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That's the only reason to talk about Donald Trump. <laughs> GOP frontrunner Donald Trump. And Andy in England wrote us yesterday and uh, pointed out that Trump in the UK means fart. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and as someone at Crooks and Liars emailed, said, the silent Trumps yeah. are the deadliest. <laughs> yeah. They're the majority, you know. Oh, The silent man. Trumpy majority. Uh, so, I mean, what were you saying last night about Reince Priebus calling Donald Trump? Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and here we go, violating our own rule. About, but it was, it's, it is, it goes to a larger and really important theme mm-hmm. that uh, Brother Charlie Pierce talks about and that, that we've been talking about on the left for a really long time. This is what's so weird about this is all the things we've been talking about forever are coming true, or at least coming to the surface. And everyone's acting shocked 
about shit that we've been going, yeah, well, you know, there we go. There is no Republican Party anymore. Yeah. There is yeah. absolutely no such thing as the Republican Party, and there hasn't really been for a really long time. There is a, a, a constellation of corporate and oligarchic interests, fascistic interests, bigoted interests, and media that operates as a political party. But there is no political party. Uh, it's yeah. it's a bunch of rich people and Fox News that hires and fires employees. And sometimes those employees are on the air and sometimes they're in suits in Congress or running states. But they're all it's all the same thing. And so the idea that that Reince Priebus um, would just would call up Donald Trump to discipline him, <laughs> you know, yeah. is yeah. and just not discipline, but beg him. Because what what, yeah. what did he really do? Reince Priebus called up Donald Trump to beg him to please use your inside bigot voice and not your outside bigot voice. Yep. And, and Trump told and him to fuck off. MST3K's Frank Conniff yeah. tweeted to say, uh, Reince Priebus wants <laughs> Donald Trump to use his nice, polite racism like the rest of the GOP yeah. people. <laughs> yeah, you're giving the game away. <laughs> and that's what and that is the utility of Donald Trump. That is that is the usefulness of him. He is a direct um pipeline to he he's there's to always the brainstem yeah. of the Republican Party. Because there's still it this, is. Yep. this thin little George Will veneer of, uh-huh. of respectability that, that blasted does, right off. It doesn't yeah. really exist at all. It it exists yeah. because People like Chuck Todd keep relacquering it over mm-hmm. the GOP mm-hmm. and pretending they're not a bunch of crazy idiots. See, there's a, a smart guy. His name's David Brooks. He, he'll talk. He won't say <laughs> racist things, right, David? That's right, Chuck. <clears throat> but, it, but the truth of the matter is that Donald Trump just is the GOP. He just yeah. is who they are. And when he opens his mouth, out comes every email you've ever gotten from Crazy Uncle Liberty. And mm-hmm. the fact mm-hmm. that Reince Priebus you know, can't rein him in is the story of the Republican Party. And this became inevitable the day that Richard Nixon decided to become a George Wallace politician, decided to import the Dixiecrats into the GOP. This became inevitable when Ronald Reagan decided to import Jerry Falwell and his whole filthy band of fake Christians into the GOP. This became inevitable when we gave up on having news and instead had, we're, we're going to all going to pick what we want to hear. Yeah. And so we mm-hmm. have this entirely separate hate radio universe, this entirely separate Fox News universe that just tells people on the right what they want to hear over and over again. This all became inevitable decades ago. And all we are seeing now is the fruits of what um, Rod Serling was writing about in 1964. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. The parlor, right? Who's yeah. in your parlor? Yeah, it, it doesn't exist on – there's no link to it because I pulled it out of the Rod Serling biography that I have and I actually read stuff like that. But Rod Serling was writing um, – wrote to the editorial board, wrote to the was, – was, was having a, a, a fight in the paper – in the Los Angeles Times, back when it was the very conservative Los Angeles Times. And he was warning that the Republican Party is letting Klan members, neo-Nazis, and every other fascist and Bertrand group that crawled out of the sewer into their party. And it's giving them respectability. And that's a really, really dangerous thing. He wrote that in 1964. That's how long this has been going on. And our media now exists solely for the purpose 
of helping the rest of America pretend that that's not happening. And it's becoming impossible to do. So it's becoming impossible for Chuck Todd to do his job. Yeah. Because his yeah. job is to, is to lend Ted Cruz respectability. And Ted Cruz's job is to piss in Chuck Todd's face. Uh, so that's pretty much all we're going to say about, yeah. <laughs> about Donald Trump. I want to talk about what happened in the House of Representatives yesterday. Yes, yes. The good thing about waiting until Friday morning to pot. Oh, uh, man. The House Democrats are getting a little feisty, which is a good thing. Yeah. Here's the story. There was some finagling going on, but essentially there is this uh, interior department budget spending bill uh-huh. uh, that is going to cut cut funding for the EPA and provide some funding for national parks, but cut it. And Thank God. Uh, you know, it's a Republican bill. Yeah, starve, starve. Uh, mm-hmm. But it does provide funding. It is going to fund some of the programs of the Interior Department. And the Democrats, including Nancy Pelosi, decided to push to have the Confederate flag removed from national cemeteries, mm-hmm. from federally funded cemeteries. From all those places that this... That is, our tax dollars support. That are controlled and, by the yeah. interior and by, by right. this bill. This this got some Southern Republicans upset. Yeah, apparently <laughs> they didn't get the memo. But this is the part that got me. Um, there, there was a move to move this section of the bill to committee, which would kill it. Right, make it go away. And the person that was selected to go before the Congress and move that this get tabled and move to committee mm-hmm. was a congressman named Calvert, who's from California. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, then there was this parliamentary outburst of uh, a voice vote where Democrats screamed no right. <laughs> and to not table it, but to have a voice vote on it. Yeah. And, well, and, and uh, what's the virtue of a voice vote? No record. The, the, the chairman can say the eyes have well, it. Well, and there's no record. There's no, <laughs> and there's, there's no record. record and there's no record. Mm-hmm. And, of course, so Nancy Pelosi pushed for there to be an actual vote so that everyone would be on the record for or against the flag right. of the Confederacy. The American swastika, for or against it. <laughs> <laughs> and John Boehner goes before a bunch of reporters and said, you know, we need to have a conversation about it. Yeah, yeah. About race? We're going to have a conversation about race? A mature about race? conversation about the flag. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> in the afternoon, Congressman Calvert, this is the part that, that jumped out at me as the point of the whole thing. Uh-huh. Republican California Congressman Calvert insisted on Thursday afternoon that the amendment was not his idea. <laughs> It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Boehner made me do it. Mm -hmm. Party leaders under pressure from Southern Republicans had put him up to it. That's right. So they got a Californian to do their dirty work. That's right. Southern cowards Uh would not go before the House and say, say, you know, no, we want to we want to make sure the flag stays up for now. And I I, want to contrast that with what's been happening in South Carolina and some of these state houses. Yeah. Uh, where you have Jenny Horn, the Republican and descendant of Jefferson Davis, Mm -hmm. being so tearful and so impassioned about doing the right thing. Uh, Jefferson Davis or uh, Robert E. Lee? No, Jefferson Davis. No, she said, I am a descendant of Jefferson Davis. Gotcha. 
and I don't need to hear any more. Nobody needs to lecture me anymore about heritage. Yeah. I w- I'm a lifelong South Carolinian and a descendant of Jefferson Davis, and this is an insult to my friends. My living um, friends who were standing right there. Right there. Right, right. And then there was another I – did, I didn't catch his name, but there was another man from a state house, I think in North Carolina, I believe, who went before the house and said, you know, I, this is my first term in, in the house, and it may be my last – and I may get primaried over this, and I may lose my job, but I want to make sure that this speech that I'm giving right now is in the ad rather than just he voted against our Southern heritage. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, the consciousness that being a Republican in the South means you have to toe the party line on racism uh-huh. is dying. Well, it's, uh, and some people are standing up to it it's, within the Republican Party. It's not dying a natural death. No, it's not. It is being <laughs> hauled out of its... Propped up on life support. It is being pulled... Well, it's yeah, it's being pulled out of the shadows where it's been living. It, it yeah. thrives in there. It thrives behind catchphrases and code words and all the yeah. dog whistles that every yeah. Republican has used since Nixon. Exactly. To make these and, earlier. and earlier. And earlier. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> But, and I just want to point out Josh Clark also, who is a 29-year-old uh, former Confederate flag wearer. Oh, you, you read this. This is a wonderful yeah, story. Yeah, yeah. It, it's a uh, Facebook sensation. Josh Clark talked about, you know, I, I love, I'm a Southern boy who lives in the city but is country boy in, at heart, and I love to hunt and I love to fish. And I've, I've had a Confederate flag T-shirt on and... Uh, even had a Confederate flag bumper sticker, let it wave on my truck, uh-huh. you know. And But when I went to college, I started to think for myself, and this issue came up, and I started to look it up and see what this flag meant. And we don't need this symbol of slavery. I mean, I don't need to say it, but slavery <laughs> is a moral wrong, uh-huh. it says on Facebook. <laughs> As if you should have to say that. Yeah, I shouldn't have to say this, uh-huh. but slavery is morally wrong. And that's what this Confederate flag stands for. And I, we don't need this to show that we like to hunt and fish and that we're Southern. Right. We just don't need it. Mm-hmm. And, I, and then he apologizes. I mean, he really takes responsibility <clears throat> and says, I know I have lots of black friends. He says. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm sure he does. I have lots of black friends who said nothing when they saw the Confederate flag on my truck. And I want to apologize to them because they were just too nice to say anything to me about how offensive this is. Mm-hmm. And uh, for all the people who over the years said nothing to me when they saw me displaying this, I apologize. I was wrong. Yep. Well, and, and he yeah. he actually did his homework. Yeah. Yeah. He looked into yeah. it mm-hmm. and found out what is really going on. And when you and I, uh, when you read this to me. Mm-hmm. I said, A, great, that's wonderful. Uh, let's multiply him by a million. Mm-hmm. And B, the next question I would have if he and I were chatting would be, why do you think people keep passing this lie down? Because mm-hmm. there are people who, who are genuinely ignorant, who just have no idea, don't know, don't care. This is what my daddy taught me and his daddy taught him, and that's just the way it's been. And But they, those people fight like the devil to not learn anything different. Mm-hmm. And then there's mm-hmm. people who absolutely know the truth and lie about it. And they keep lying about it. 
And what should we do about those people? Not mm-hmm. the people like you who, who didn't know any better and are really genuinely sorry that you offended people. But the people who run large media corporations and own newspapers and are politicians who goddamn well know exactly what that flag means and use it as a signifier uh, because they don't care. Uh, this is the, the sort of the George Wallace argument. Uh, uh, Jeet here and Bill Mon were going back and forth on the Twitter last night. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about George Wallace and Ted Cruz and how, how you sort of feel sorry for, you know, like, geez, maybe I was a little hard on George Wallace because Ted Cruz is a real asshole. He certainly reminds me <laughs> of it. <clears throat> and I, I, I dropped myself into the middle of our conversation and said, remember, George Wallace was the NAACP endorsed candidate for governor. Yeah. Well, the first time he ran and he was beaten by a guy named Patterson, I believe. And he was by an open Klansman, a guy who mm-hmm. openly was endorsed by and approved the Klan. Mm-hmm. And George Wallace famously said, I will never be out N-worded again. Mm-hmm. And he mm-hmm. hired himself a Klansman, the, the violent bomb-throwing arm of the Klan, uh, to be his campaign manager or advisor or something like and that. And put it together. And put he, together what, what the racists in Alabama wanted to hear and he so that George that, Wallace would be their guy exactly. from now on. And he yep. became that guy to win mm-hmm. an election. Mm-hmm. That is the Republican Party. They became mm-hmm. that guy to win elections. Mm-hmm. Now all the people they've been telling for generations, this passing this lie, this monstrous hatred, this deep paranoia – along like hemophilia, generation after generation. Now it's coming back at him. Well, and George Wallace then, when he was shot and put in a wheelchair for the rest of his life, yep. apologized. Again, it's like, it's like this guy on Facebook. Mm-hmm. He apologized. He became an advocate. Uh, and uh, when I was in Alabama, living in Alabama when George Wallace died. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, a friend of mine came over and said, I was in a store today and I could not believe the number of African-Americans who were saying, it's such a shame about George Wallace, bless his heart. Uh, I'll be praying for him. Mm-hmm. And thinking, are you kidding me? Uh-oh. You know, this is this white lawyer saying, are you kidding me? Well, and that's, that's George the, Wallace? And that's the response, you know, because every time this conversation, every time this conversation comes up, there are mm-hmm. four talking points in the back pocket of every meat bag who who will not give up on this. And one of them is always Robert Byrd. Yeah. And you know yeah. what? Yeah. Robert Byrd's life had a moral arc to it. Yes. He started off uh, an open proponent of evil when he was in his teens and 20s. And then he worked really hard as an adult and to his death to undo the damage he had done. So let's look at the totality of, of that distance, that journey, the, the way he was headed and judge him by that. Um, as opposed to saying, well, he, he did this bad thing one time. He, he was this bad person when he was in his 20s. Ergo, liberals are, are Klansmen. Ergo, I don't have to listen to your fucking argument. Um, <laughs> well, that's like the tweet I read you this morning about somebody said Kwanzaa. That means the flag needs to go back up. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> and those, and again, those people, uh, uh, with the exception of the people who are just genuinely ignorant and, and, and mm-hmm. come to know and understand that what they believe is simply wrong. Mm-hmm. And repent and change, and bless his heart, in his twenties or thirties, rather than his seventies or eighties. Yeah, um, those people, terrific. Let's keep outreach. Let's keep talking to those people. Let's keep trying. But the institutional 
racism, the institutional white supremacy on the right mm-hmm. is, is mm-hmm. the business plan. That's, that is the plan. Well, and my ex-husband was president of the ACLU of Alabama during the whole Judge Roy Moore, you know, uh, Ten Commandments rock yep. thing. Yep. And he said on lots of interviews, look, if the Civil Rights Act was put to a vote in Alabama, it would not pass. Yeah, that's right. So, so reaching there would be a very easy way for the Republican Party in Alabama to make this about taxes. Exactly. <laughs> well, welfare. You should make it about welfare. You know? It's about welfare and it's about mooching. It's about well, it's about increasing your taxes. That's really what it's about. <laughs> well, it's about increasing your taxes to give money to welfare cheats. Welfare people. Well, you don't have to say that. Exactly. You don't have to say it. It's, it's so encoded in the brain. And so you're never going to win over. You're never going to pry those people loose of their, the flag in their hearts. What you can do is really beat the daylights out of people who put them on television and don't yeah. roast them when they're given that opportunity. When you put when you have a camera fixed on Ted Cruz, your question shouldn't be, what about the 11 million? What about the 11 million? Hey, about that 11 million. I'll ask him one last time and maybe he'll give it up. Your question should be, hey, Ted, here's a list of 20 things that you fucking lied about. Let's go through yeah. that list and you tell me uh, how you feel about lying to your constituents. Are you lying strategically because you know that they're idiots? Are you just don't know you're lying? Are you a sociopath? What's the deal? And if he tears off his microphone and runs away, that's a successful interview. That's what you should be doing when you have a chance to put someone like that in the spotlight. And our media doesn't do it because they're not in the news business. They're in the entertainment business. All right. It's time for Bible Bitch. Bible Bitch. That's not scriptural. I've been thinking about the um, county clerk who doesn't want to issue gay marriage licenses yes. but has been married four times. Yes. That's different. That's different. Bless her heart. Bless her heart. <laughs> I wasn't gay married not even one time. But you know it's Southern for fuck you. Yeah. Everybody knows that, right? Yeah. Bless your heart is Southern for fuck you. Yeah. Uh, so I want to read uh, a little parable from Matthew 15. And just this is just fi- file this under um, nothing is ever new. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew 15. Pharisees and religion scholars came to Jesus all the way from Jerusalem, criticizing. Why do your disciples play fast and loose with the rules? But Jesus put it right back on them. Why do you use your rules to play fast and loose with God's commands? Yeah. You cancel God's command by your rules. Frauds. <laughs> Isaiah's prophecy of you hit the bullseye. These people make a big show of saying the right thing, but their heart isn't in it. They act like they're worshiping me, but they don't mean it. They just use me as a cover for teaching whatever suits their fancy. Then he called the crowd together and said, Listen and take this to heart. It's not what you swallow that pollutes your life, but what you vomit up. Yeah. Later, his disciples came and told him, do you know how upset the Pharisees were when they heard what you said? <laughs> Jesus, they're so mad. They're so mad. Oh, God. This is, this is the point. Uh-huh. You know, the Pharisees are real mad about Do you this. see what they're saying about you on Twitter? I mean, it's really bad. <clears throat> Jesus shrugged it off. Mm-hmm. Every tree that wasn't planted by my father in heaven will be pulled up by its roots. Forget them. They are blind men leading blind men. When a blind man leads a blind man, they both end up in the ditch. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying, the lesson here is, <laughs> the lesson Jesus here needed is... reputation management software. 
online. <laughs> online reputation just, management software. Maybe this wouldn't happen, you know? No, they crucified him anyway. Yeah, that, yeah. That's- <laughs> You're listening to the Professional Left Podcast, professionalleft.blogspot.com. We've got a few more minutes. Let's talk about Tom Brokaw. All right. Yeah. I think that's just for a minute. That's a good place to start. Uh, yeah. Uh, we had a, um, Tom Brokaw gave an interview uh, in the Daily. First of all, you got to do your Tom Brokaw impersonation. Tom Brokaw gave a, a fascinating interview. In the, uh, you just hold your tongue down. That's all there is to it, really. <laughs> Tom Brokaw, who has a, a profound speech impediment. And uh, is an anchor for NBC News for years, which makes no uh, – really? You, you pick the one guy who can't pronounce uh, certain letters of the alphabet that occur a lot, um, <laughs> and you make him the anchor for, you know, for the last – Well, he's got North Dakota. He's, I mean, that's the, that's the thing. It's not Southern and it's not New England, I have so no they're, therefore it's I'm, TV. I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm America. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. So he's yeah. – but he is, he's in this article, and it's an article about his terminal illness. He's very sick. He yeah. um, believes he has, according to his doctors, you know, six or eight years left, um, which is uh, that that's unfortunate. I feel sad for him. I'm glad, given the enormous amount of money he has made being on television, uh, being a face and a nice haircut on TV for a generation, that his great grandchildren will never have to worry about making a living. Yeah, and he's made he's made that clear on interviews with. John Stewart and a whole bunch of people. I have trust funds for my grandchildren, so I'm all set. I'm very rich. I'm very, very rich. And he didn't get rich um, inventing. From the stock market. Uh, He got rich (laughs) being that guy. And he says, you know, now that he's essentially the the paterfamilias of of NBC. He he says in the interview that he has the best office in the building, um, that he's treated with a great deal of respect, and so forth. And I wrote a little post that you can read it if you like, called Family Business. Because... There's a moment in The Godfather where um, Santino is chastised by the Don for talking about, you know, you never talk about what you're thinking in front of anybody who's not in the family. Right. So there's this news organization called NBC, which is theoretically in charge of reporting on the news. And what happened with Brian Williams is news. The fact that these people control the agenda that we talk about, the fact that they give you know Chuck Todd a platform, the fact that they make all these corporate decisions that limit our national debate so severely and in one direction, all that is news. Mm-hmm. And the fact that Brian Williams you know made shit up and got fired is news. And as a news organization, if they were primarily a news organization. This is what they should talk about, at least in passing. This is an area of interest, specific and direct interest to the public. It is uh, how you get the information used to to make your decisions, presumably. It affects our politics. It's a big, important thing. So in this interview, Tom Brokaw is very candid and open about his illness, his family, his history, his wealth, uh, his office, his status at the corporation, and when it comes around to Brian Williams, he said, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm not going to. Yeah. Yeah. And when he opened up his whole personal life. And of course he's selling a book about it. So there's that, but I'm not talking about, but I'm not going to talk about anything that the corporate headquarters of my company, that's private. He said, he said there were private (laughs) publicly traded company is private. There were private conversations (laughs) and, you know, behind closed doors. And I'm not talking about those. I'm not going to do it. And, that, and, you know, it might be in his contract not to talk about it. I get that. But that's the but, point. But the point is. He is not yeah. a journalist. Corporate America is 
personhood and privacy. Right. And the rest of us don't get that privacy. And it's right. It's um, uh, uh, two convicts on the loose in New York uh, State is a story every goddamn day. Runaway blondes are a story. Babies in wells. That's a story we got to cover. Anytime it rains in Washington or snows more than two inches, that's a fucking story. Mm-hmm. But the fact that the lead anchor for NBC News lied about a lot of things um, and got canned, and maybe this is an endemic problem. And let's use that problem to open the door to the fact that your premier Sunday talk show is a right-wing Republican shithole, and everybody knows it. All of those things are really important matters to have public discussions about. And as a news organization, you would think that would be sort of the thing you would cover. And from Rachel Maddow, when this happened with Brian Williams saying, you know, we tried to get an interview, but we didn't. And let's just drop it. To Tom Brokaw saying explicitly, I'm not talking about it. That's all you need to know. This is a corporation that produces a news-like product. And, but it's not a news organization. And Tom Brokaw is not a journalist. He's Comcast Employee of the Month. Right. And don't, so right. don't expect anything. Because he sells that product very well. Exactly. And yeah. once you understand that you're not watching the news and you're not watching people who have your best interest at heart or believe you should, we should talk about what's really important to you and your life, mm-hmm. you understand that what you're looking at is the internal corporate newsletter for Washington, D.C. It's mm-hmm. the House organ. It's the, it's the gossip sheet for uh, several hundred thousand people who control our lives. And that's all it is. Each week we post to our Facebook page and website an Internet Kitty sent in by you, the listeners. This week's Internet Kitty, in keeping with our food theme, <laughs> is Nabisco. No affiliation <laughs> is indicated. <laughs> he has nothing to do with Soylent Green, but Nabisco is beautiful. And you should go visit him at our Facebook page and website. You can send your Internet Kitty to us at our email address, proleftpodcast at gmail.com, where you can also write to both of us. Feel free to write us. We do love hearing from you. Be aware that if you write us at any of our addresses, we reserve the right to read your email or U.S. Postal Service. Go, Postal Unions! Letter on the air, unless you say otherwise. Don't forget our gourmet coffee guideline. If you can afford to buy an espresso-based beverage for yourself, buy one for us. We've also had a few emails from people asking if we have an Amazon affiliate link. And uh, so when the third person wrote me and asked me that, that's usually my threshold. (laughs) And three people, oh, all right. All right. (laughs) All right, fine. We'll get one. Um, And we did it just in time for this uh, thing that they're doing, this Amazon Prime Day on July 15th. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to have special deals, I guess. Is it Amazon Uh, Prime Day again? I always forget. I got to go get you a card. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a day before my birthday. Uh-huh. So think about that. You know, overnight shipping, you can be just in time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, at our website, professionalleft.blogspot.com, on the sidebar, there's a link to Amazon Prime, to Amazon Thingy, whatever. It's just a link. It's not an ad, but there is a link there. You can click, and if you shop at Amazon, uh, that at, from that link, uh, we will get a percentage of the sales back to us. Should I put that on my website, Blue Gal? Whatever you want to do. Okay. <laughs> Whatever you want to do. <laughs> We've always been kind of hesitant to do the whole go the whole advertising route. 
in, in the sense that we don't do any advertising whatsoever. Well, we did, I, I'm just, I'm not a marketer. No. I'm a, I'm a activist or something. I don't know. What, what am I? You're my wife. I'm passionate. I have passions and I, I put those passions out there and I'm not afraid to talk about and you're, it. So. You're the, uh, you're the most important part of the best damn liberal podcast in America. There you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, thank you. That's what you, you are. <laughs> Um, approximately 1% of our listeners support this podcast with a contribution, and you can, too. See our website, again, professionalleft.blogspot.com for details. Both our PayPal and postal address information, as well as a link to Amazon now. <laughs> it makes me feel a little dirty. <laughs> Is there at professionalleft.blogspot.com. Just cut us a check for 100 grand, and you know we'll stop, we'll stop pushing the Amazon and the various soaps and oils and golds and seeds and other things that we uh, tell you to buy. <laughs> How many ads are on? Um... Every other website in the world? No, oh. I'm I'm just I'm just thinking about uh uh Goldline and the whole the whole thing with um Oh, it's so good that I forgot his name. Oh, Glenn Beck. Who used to be on Fox and is Glenn, now Glenn Beck. Glenn Beck. Yes. I totally forgot. And that's so good that my brain just left Glenn Beck behind and yeah. discarded that. But he didn't he hasn't forgotten you, Blue Gal. <laughs> he wants me to buy gold coins. He does. <laughs> I don't know what he's selling, but um, I'm sure it's important, and you should. What help. percentage of Glenn Beck's web show is ads? I wonder. Oh, a third. Thirty percent. A third, sure. You know, and it's really. I mean, I I do listen to him every now and then when I'm I'm jaunting about town because yeah. it's on that radio thing, and it's yeah. this weird juxtaposition. I mean, he really is. He's good at being a disc jockey, but <clears throat> it is the old-fashioned farm report or live read radio, uh, Paul Harvey, what have you that. You know, you're, you're reporting on the news, and then now to our friends at Miller's Pants. Miller's Pants to cover your ass. Miller's Pants. <laughs> and, and it's just this. It's absolutely sick. You could do that. I, what You've really lost your calling. I, well, I, I keep knocking on the door, and I keep being told yeah. to go away. Go away. <laughs> we have someone who will talk about Miller's Pants. He's 20 years old. He'll look for nothing. Miller's Pants. Cover your ass. <laughs> Miller's Pants. But it's the juxtaposition of, uh, we are witnessing the end of civilization as we know it. Uh, the gay marriage <laughs> thing has destroyed Christian values forever. And the republic is a smoking hole in the ground now where the constitution used to be. Congratulations, Again, America. Speaking of product. You're dead. And then it's a cut to. that gets sold. Well, yeah. no, it's, it's, that, it's that apocalyptic cut to Miller's pants. Yeah. Dress yeah. for the apocalypse yeah. with Miller's pants. <laughs> Well, you did. I never aired it, but you did do an ad for Bible Bitch. I did. Remember that? I did. <laughs> well, with Pontius Pilates. Pontius Pilates. Whip yourself into shape right. with Pontius, with Pontius Pilates. Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> We're having a two-for-one offer down at Pilates. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anytime three or more are gathered in my name, do some Pontius Pilates. It's 20% off. <laughs> this coupon can be is good at Miller's Pants. Miller's Pants for all occasions. <laughs> Please rate our show on iTunes <laughs> or Stitcher Radio, and thank you for doing that. So, Drift Class. Yeah, Blue Gal. How are the Internet Kitties doing this week? Blue Gal, the Internet Kitties heard that Donald Trump took Ryan's Priebus to the vet yesterday to be tutored. Let's think about living. Let's think about loving. Let's think about the hooping and the hopping and the bopping and the loving, loving, dubbing. Let's forget about the whining and the crying and the shooting and the dying and the fellow with a switchblade knife. Let's think about living. Let's think about life. The Professional Left Podcast is recorded under a Creative Commons license. 
Copyright 2015, Drift Glass Blue Gal Podcast. Minecraft is awesome. Now it's time for Science Fiction University with our science fiction expert, Drift Glass. Science Fiction University comes to us from Dogface Terman, who has a big announcement. A big announcement, uh, big, big announcement. announcement. Uh, he started an online radio show at live365.com. It is music that has a science fiction horror fantasy theme. He's also thrown in some non-music audio clips like that Star Trek anti-drug PSA and some movie trailers. And I put up a link to that at our Facebook page. You can also access it at www.live365.com forward slash stations, plural, forward slash dog-faced Herman. Faced. Faced. Past the tense. D. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Congratulations. We're excited about that for you. And, Very much uh, so. It's, yeah. it's a niche that's been crying out to be filled. And there's no one better to fill it. There's, there's no one literally to fill <laughs> literally, it. Literally, there's no one else out there to yeah. do this who has this kind of collection. I mean, it's it's, it's amazing. His, it's his impressive. depth it's of knowledge is amazing. So he has sent us... Uh, oh, uh, one more thing. Yeah. Happy birthday, Blue Gal. Oh, thank you, Drift Glass. Happy birthday to you. Yes, and happy birthday to my mother, too. We have the same birthday. July 16th is our birthday, and uh, we share that birthday with um, the late Barbara Stanwyck. Quite a dame. Quite a dame. Drank with the boys, you know. As as is my wife, quite a dame. spirit animal. (laughs) She really is. She's my spirit animal. Uh, since yeah. we're doing, well, I should be doing this with a theremin since we're doing this with a uh, science fiction, universe. but I have, I, I, you know what? I, I, I sold my theremin to buy you a comb, but I know that you sold your hair to buy me a theremin tuner, which is be a great story. Actually. Yeah, I think it's been done. Oh crap. Okay. Everything's been done. Everything's already been done. <laughs> On with the show. On with the show. So, uh, Dogface Herman has sent us six clips plus a bonus. Uh, these are dystopian. And I will tell you that the, you will instantly recognize this first song okay. from another movie. All right. But it was used in a, a dystopian film, ironically. Uh-huh. And we need you not to name the original movie. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you because you will know what this is. But okay. All right. Tell us the dystopian movie that used this song ironically. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feel, and I'm happy again. Well, singing in the rain. Right. Um, which uh, we just saw. Yeah, it was on. Uh, which I, yeah. I think it's a trick question. I think Gene Kelly sang the song ironically <laughs> uh, in the dystopian horror that was the coming of the talkies in Hollywood. So uh-huh. I'm just going to go with that. Or I, I have no idea. Uh, I, it, it sounds really familiar, but I'm going to guess maybe Brazil or something like yeah, that. Yeah, now see, that's, what, that's a very good guess. Brazil's a very good guess. Okay. Uh, it is Clockwork Orange. Oh, yeah, of course it is. Of course it is. I should know that. Two is a TV show. Okay. Whoever you are, if you found this tape, you've retrieved it from Amber. 
If you are watching this, then you know very well that the observers have invaded. And I am most probably dead. And unfortunately, my plan to stop them has failed. I have documented all the parts of the plasma on videotapes. You must recover each tape and follow the instructions of each of those tapes to retrieve all the parts of the plan. Once you do so, what you need to do will be clear to you. If successful, this plan will restore us and rid the world of the observers. You were chosen for this. This is your destiny. I understand if you're frightened, it will not be easy, but I trust that the same will that brought you here will keep you going. Uh, I have to go with um, some episode of either X-Files or um, um, Millennia that I've completely forgotten. It's, it sounds... it's, in that, it's in that family. Okay. It's, it's Fringe. Yeah, oh, that's, yeah okay. That's that, that's that family, all right. Yeah, Fringe Season 5. Dogface Sherman writes, many of the stories in Fringe are forgettable, yeah. but the characters and acting are great, and that goes a long way with me. So, yeah. My uh, science fiction writing uh, mentor slash buddy in Chicago told me that that was a good show, and I just never... I never caught up, and I'm uh-huh. sure she'll downgrade retroactively the paper. But you were you were an X Files guy. I was, right? oh, yeah, I was a very big X Files guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, here's something a little older than Fringe. Try this one. September the seventeenth, British civil defence deliver to the public for the first time details of the hazards to be expected from radioactive fallout. Good morning, madam. Would you please read this booklet and carry out the instructions carefully? But what, what is it? It's a civil defence booklet, uh, your protection against nuclear attack. But I... I... Good morning, madam. Uh, excuse me. Uh, what are you doing here, exactly? Uh, well, we're issuing to as many householders as possible a copy of this booklet, which tells them how to prepare their houses against blast and fallout. Have people not seen this booklet before? Well, a copy was prepared some years ago, but uh, it didn't sell very well. It wasn't... It wasn't free? Oh no no! It costs nine Oh Jesus! I, I have no idea. It this sounds... is fascinating. Yeah. This is a movie called The War Game. Uh-huh. It, uh huh. It was originally planned to be a BBC One TV show, one-time special. Uh-huh. And, uh huh. And it is about a nuclear bomb accidentally going off in Kent, in England during a time of heightened tension between Southeast Asia and the West, uh, and filmed documentary style, Ooh, of course. cool. Yeah. Black and white. Yeah. Uh, it was um, too graphic for BBC. So it was released as a feature film and won the Oscar for 1965 for Best Documentary, even though it's a fiction <laughs> movie. Cool. Uh and it is made by Peter Watkins, who also did Punishment Park, which we talked about a couple weeks ago. That's right. Um, yeah. Dogface Sherman says, I've only recently discovered Peter Watkins, but he's worth looking up. And I think War Game is on YouTube, The War Game. Um, definitely wor- wa- worth watching a clip or two of that. Well, I, I think we should pause for a moment Yeah. And, and, uh, and think about the fact that I'm flunking science fiction university. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's an honorary degree, people. I've got, I've got a gimme for you now. <laughs> okay. Because you'll know this voice. You, okay. I, I, you might even know the movie. but Yeah, um, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm going for zero. I'm really, <laughs> You're going for perfect zero? Yeah. No. Here's number four. Try this one. 
another day to live through. Better get started. December 1965. Is that all it has been since I inherited the world? Only three years. It seems like a hundred million. Yeah, I own the world. An empty, dead, silent Today there are more of them. They live off the weak ones and leave them for the pit. Well, okay, that, that this one I actually do know. Mm-hmm. Um, yay! Thank you, Dogface Herman, for gimme. Um, that's uh, Vincent Price, the great, uh, great Vincent Price. Um, in the first film version, I think it was the first film version of uh, Richard Matheson's. Um, oh, uh, my name is Legion. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it, it this might This is called call, The Last Man on Earth okay, from 1964, right. but it is that. And it was sh- later reshot uh, with uh, the uh, chiseled uh, Charlton Heston as the Omega Man. And then much, much later remade as My Name is Legion with, uh, yeah. with Will Smith. But th- I think this was the original. This is the one they shot. Great story. It, it's one of those stories that's absolutely, um, if it's done well, you can do it to death. In fact, it's been done to death. It's been vi- the variation on this. Humanity is all but wiped out. The monsters have taken over the world, and we are the hunted now. Is yep. essentially every zombie movie, uh, every zombie show. So, well, yeah. way to go. and this is this is vampires. I mean, yeah. in this particular case, of course. But Vin- who does vampire movies better than Vincent Price? Nobody. Exactly. Oh. Well, Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing. Yeah. There's all a right. Few- let's try number five. I have dedicated all my scientific knowledge and skill to projects which I knew could be put to evil purposes. For the common good, they said. How easy to believe in the common good when that belief is rewarded with status, wealth, and power! How hard to believe in the common good when every fiber of my being tells me that the awesome forces I have helped to create have been put into the hands of madmen! I've been gay by the bottom of my own corruption! Is it not fitting then that I be president? I have no idea, and I I feel I really should know this one. I just this is I, a 1985 movie. Where were, what were you doing in 1985? Uh, no one knows. There's no, <laughs> no there's no memory. There's no living memory of it. All evidence has been carefully destroyed. This uh, is the Quiet Earth, and again, it's you know, man wakes up and is completely alone and meets a couple other people who do not share his priorities and. <laughs> Yeah, 1985, The Quiet Earth. All right, uh, see if you know this one. This well, one... Actually, both of those last two, you know, there's mm-hmm. a um, famous science fiction writing ep- uh, exercise that's also the foundation for stories about The Last Man on Earth. The Last Man on Earth uh, is sitting alone in a room, and there's a knock at the door. Now, and go with you that. you got to finish the story. Yeah. A, that's the writing assignment. There, there's a you know 20 or 30 stock writing assignments I would do if anybody ever hired me. 
to teach science fiction writing or writing of any kind. Uh, and well, and my, my answer to that query is always he goes to the door and opens it, and it's Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she <laughs> says, I am no man. <laughs> yeah! Hey, I'm the last man on Earth! I am no man. <laughs> so... And I got Sotomayor here with me. Yeah, got a whole line <laughs> and we're going to rule this faux shizzle. <laughs> Excuse me, I have to clear my throat. <clears> throat> outnumbered. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Elena oh. Kagan, you here? All right. Here? All right, ladies. <laughs> clean this rat hole out and start over. All right. Finally, uh, we do have a bonus clip, which is not a science fiction university question. But the last question is number six. Here it is. Okay. I think that about does it. Now, I need some matches and uh, two boxes of candles. And Karen, pick up a case of soap. Why do you need all those candles? We're thinking of opening a candlelight restaurant. And all that soap. Are your customers going to have to shower before they eat? <laughs> We're just going to the hills to rough it for a while. For a while. Well, the rest of your lives looks like... Maybe. What's the tab? $190.03. Mister, I certainly appreciate this. Along with that money, let me give you some good advice. As long as I ain't bound to take it. Lock up the store, take all the merchandise you can carry, and hide it. All right, uh, that one was, uh, I don't know what the title is, but I know the movie. Um, I, I, I've seen it recently. It's, um, it's Raymond Land is our protagonist and it's a family on a vacation in a trailer um, that, have, that has gone out uh, up through the mountains and just outside of Los Angeles. And there's a big flash <laughs> and uh, Los Angeles has nuked. Yes. And it's Rainbow Land and his family um, um, going, running away from the, uh, the fallout first and then the crowds and, Slowly, civilization is breaking down. Um, first, they stop to buy stuff, and the guy will accept, you know, whatever. The second store, the guy wants a ton more and won't take a check or something. Ray Milan has to pull a gun, but says, here's my wallet. I'm not stealing. I'm, I'm just giving you, you know, <laughs> credit. Um, and, and it's the slow, it's not a particularly great movie, but it's a slow breakdown of civilization. What it is notable for is disasters in pre-internet, uh, pre-text, pre-Twitter. Um, when hours go by, I seem to recall, and people outside of the blast zone, people beyond the mountains, are still not quite sure what happened. There's, you know, there's, they know there are a whole bunch of people showing up in a hurry that people are kind of freaking out and buying everything in sight. They hear rumors about it. But long after um, the bomb goes off and whatever else happens, People just outside the blast zone in the United States are still very confused about what's really going on. Right, right. And that just wouldn't happen. Um, well, and just, phone lines go down. There's no fiber optic cable under the ground in cities. Yeah. It's all wire. And there's so, no satellite. There's no. There's no nothing. And yeah. there's also um, a reminder. I guess this would be a, a, a good time to count our blessings. There's a remind. When I was a kid, people were genuinely terrified. Yeah. Um, of of nuclear war. We had, um, in our, uh, I put it there. I know cause I put it there. <laughs> there was a health class pamphlet, um, that they gave us at school about Renkins, about the amount of radiation that would be necessary, 
um, to kill you mm-hmm. and make mm-hmm. you sick and how mm-hmm. to properly store food and water and what happens if you get fallout on things. This was a, a something they gave me at school, along, yeah. you know, yeah. poison uh, control. Right. And that, you know, there's still nuclear weapons. There's still disaster. There's still all kinds of reasons to be sad and afraid. But well, on the, that note, on that one. note, this movie is called Panic in Year Zero. Uh-huh. It was also directed by Ray Milland. Yay. And Frankie Avalon plays Ray oh, Milland's no, son cool. in this movie. I, I can say I remember the hair that's, <laughs> distinctly. I remember the hair very well. And here is a bonus clip. Uh, this is Conal Rad. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. Vinyl records, which, you know, I can't imagine would survive a nuclear <laughs> meltdown. <laughs> but, you know. Yeah. But in, in it's duck and cover for the, for the audio set. And... Uh, here's what radio stations had on file in the case of, you know, a civil defense emergency. <laughs> we interrupt our normal program to cooperate in security and civil defense measures as requested by the United States government. This is a Conrad radio alert. Normal broadcasting will now be discontinued for an indefinite period. Civil defense information will be broadcast in most areas at 6.40 and 12.40 on your regular radio receiver. I repeat, normal broadcasting will be discontinued for an indefinite period. All right, now, uh, before we talk about a little bit about True Detective, uh-huh. I want to remind you and everyone that, uh, you know, Comic-Con is this weekend. Oh, that's right. And the Doctor Who Series 9 tra- uh, trailer preview, whatever you want to call it, was released at Comic-Con this week. And that's what caused Ray Milan to flee the mountains. No. Um, and, uh, no? Maisie Williams, who plays Arya Stark in Game of Thrones, uh-huh. is in Doctor Who this oh season. Oh, my. Okay. And I, I know a middle child who's going to be very excited. Well, that's, that is very exciting. The new Doctor Who. Yeah. Is it, is it a new Doctor or just the new series? Oh, no. Of course it's not a new Doctor. Uh-huh. No. We still have Peter Capaldi to kick around for a few more years, I think. Uh, well, you know, we've we've never on uh, Game of Thrones, we have never actually been to Casterly Rock, home of the Lannisters. I think Peter Capaldi is the warden or steward of Casterly Rock. I think that should be a thing. <laughs> and he should just spend all of his time pacing the, the parapet and swearing. He's the secret weapon. He's they're going to they, dragons for fire, and they're going to roll out Peter Capaldi as Malcolm just to spare the zombies to death. <laughs> fuck you all! <laughs> hey, fuck it, bye, and they just fuck it, bye mm-hmm. <laughs> to the to the winter people, to the walkers, the, the white walkers, walkers. Yeah. <laughs> Crap! I, I got <laughs> Oh, look at you with your snow! I've got dragons. Mm-hmm. Fuck it, bye. <laughs> they have a friggin' Capaldi. We didn't know that. <laughs> Damn it. Well, speaking of television series that are... Yeah, you want to talk for a few minutes about True Detective. And and, uh, we listened to a very good podcast on True Detective. Better than anything we could offer on True Detective, I think. We did. Um, It's called Grantland. It's part of the Grantland oeuvre of... Writer Collective. Writer's Collective, right. Um, And these two guys, you know, what are their names again? Uh, Andy Greenwald, who writes very well, and I I like his writing a lot, and Chris Ryan do a weekly recap podcast of uh, of TV shows, uh, sports, which they are they they both. uh, It's Grantland seems to be mostly sports writing Mm -hmm. and uh, music and cultural trends, et cetera, whatever catches their attention. But they're very wired into 
the um, television industry. Mm-hmm. And the they know writers, they know directors, they, they know sets and set production and so forth. And, and they, they can say, you know, oh, so-and-so's writing for thus-and-so now. Well, you know where that's going. Yeah. And yeah, they really kind of know sort of the – which amuses and interests me. It shouldn't – no one should really care about that in terms of pure art. No, but it's sort of inside baseball writerly stuff. Absolutely. And uh, you you uh, had a differ, drif- difference of opinion with one of the folks on that podcast. They're very yeah. entertaining, by they the are. way. They are. And it was more – I thought that he didn't take his critique far enough. The, the, oh, okay. The question is the difference between last year's True Detective and this year's True Detective, which is, if you don't know, eight episodes, miniseries-style show on HBO that last year was amazing. It was a, a revelation. Yep. Uh, and Matthew who, McConaughey and... Woody Harrelson. Uh, Woody Harrelson. And they were very... It's it's worth going through, streaming through, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. It was. It was. Well I don't want to do any spoilers because no. at this point, if 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 people haven't seen it and are going to go put it in their DVR, I they should do that. It was unexpected. Yeah. Unexpectedly good, and it it really I think um, Mr. Harlan Ellison uh, might have said this was the best use of the mini series format mm-hmm. he's ever mm-hmm. seen, and he's I not right. Yeah. He's not a generous when it comes to praise <laughs> for television. He doesn't give positive reviews of no. television shows very often, um, but. <laughs> So that that was the bar that was set. It was uh, incredible. It was set in Louisiana. It, it was uh, it was a certain kind of story. And this year, it's not cutting it. Uh, mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, they're trying to 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 recapture the magic of it. It's a completely different story. Completely different cast. That's the trick. It's wipe the slate clean and start over. Um, and it's not working. And so Chris Ryan of Grantland notes that they're using David Lynch. They're leaning on David Lynch's tropes really hard. They actually um, linger on shots of the Mulholland Drive street sign several times. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have dream sequences that are (laughs) clearly taken straight out of David Lynch's subconscious. Um, And they they make no secret of it. I don't think anybody's, you know, pretending otherwise. Yeah. Um, But my point was, if you want to understand... I think if you want to understand why it's not working this year, uh, push it back a little further to the first person to ever overlap crime fiction, detective fiction, and gothic horror, which is what this is. Mm-hmm. That person is is uh, Edgar Allan Poe. Right. Uh, right. Edgar Allan Poe all but invented the um, detective genre. Um, in fact, uh, Conan Doyle, in his first Sherlock Holmes story, said uh, his character notes that. Watson says, Holmes, you sound a lot like that guy from Edgar Allan Poe's stories. So there's a tip of the hat going on there because he did really sort of create, along with one or two other people, this unique genre of fiction, which is all about evidence, logic, plot, and solving a puzzle. Well, isn't there an inside joke there? Because then Sherlock Holmes says, yeah, but that's fiction. Exactly. Yeah. That's, <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. But he's made up. And, and he didn't really, you know, he, he wasn't as logical. And you know, Holmes is, is insulted by it. Yeah. <laughs> it was very writerly. It was very, you know, you know, one writer sort of talking to another um, in, in a way or acknowledging what's going on over here. It's uh, American Westerns used to do that. One director would do one thing, the other one would go, no, that's just bullshit. Let me, I'll make a movie to show my friend that he doesn't know what he's talking about. So that was one area where Edgar Allan Poe excelled. The other area was gothic horror. And gothic horror is a completely different animal than detective fiction. I thought it would be interesting just to compare the two. 
because um, any Sherlock Holmes story is a logical progression of facts and clues and villains and uh, pieces that a very logical mind is puzzling out. You don't have to take a very big leap of imagination to get inside Sherlock Holmes's head and see how it works. That's why Sherlock Holmes has endured all this time as a, as a literary archetype. But the Gothic stuff that home, that, uh, Poe wrote makes no sense at all from a plotting point of view. It is absolutely, uh, uh, insane. The example I used on my post was the fall of the house of Usher, which is very short. It's, you know, it's six, eight pages long tops, but it's approaching this really creepy place. Um, the, the narrator pauses to take note of how, and he just piles these adjectives up, these really weird, creepy, subconscious, nightmarish adjectives up. There's a, a moment where our narrator literally crosses a bridge and goes under a Gothic arch mm -hmm. to get into the house of Usher. This is Edgar Allan Poe saying, you are now going into a Gothic horror story. And what that means is you're going into a dream you're not going into a uh, police procedural. You're going into a nightmare. And in nightmares, everything makes perfect sense internally. It makes no sense after you wake up. But while you are participating in the dream, everything in it makes a weird kind of logic, a weird kind of sense. You, if it's a very bad dream, you can sense something ominous moving towards you. And that's what the first season of True Detective managed to do. It managed to create a very intense nightmare. And it, it, it did so, I think, by using the, the internal mental vocabulary of dreams consciously to put you in that state of mind. It's not as if at the end of the, at the, end of the story you wake up and go, oh, it was all a dream. That's, that's not the point. Nobody you mean wakes Bobby up. Ewing doesn't come out of the shower. No, no <laughs> not, it's, not, it's not a dream of a character in a literal sense. Right. The, the encompassing, all-encompassing dream is the dream of the narrator, or the dream of the, of the storyteller. And so nobody at the end of the House of Usher wakes up. Yeah. Um, but the house is split in two by a bolt of lightning and collapses into the swamp and our narrator rides away, which makes absolutely, again, no sense at all from a plotting point of view if you're plotting it as a Western or a crime drama or something else that where, where plots are really important. But the mix of those elements is really delicate. And in the first season of True Detective, the, the, the pacing is really important. You can't slow down in a dream. You can't sort of stick around in one place and kick the walls because you start to notice that, well, this, this is all, this shit's just made up. And what second season has been doing is lingering too long in the wrong places, in my mm -hmm. opinion. Mm -hmm. So sitting in the Sylvia Plath bar and grill for way too friggin' long. To the point where it does the one thing that kill absolutely kills a story that depends on your audience participating in a dream. It flips you out of the story. It kicks yeah, you, you out of you, the. You start to wonder why am I here rather than what's happening. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Um, uh, uh, Vince Vaughn staring at the ceiling, musing about killing rats and his dad. Uh, that should have gone on for you know forty five seconds. <laughs> it went on seemingly. It went on for half an hour. Uh, it, it was one of those things where you stop wondering about again the, the story itself and wondering, oh my goodness, this is a story. This is a, a this is an artificially constructed thing, and the and the seams and the bolts are showing, and that's when it starts to fall apart. Well, and there's there's something else that I've been picking up from True Detective this season. Mm -hmm. uh, this whole theme of fatherhood, and it crosses over with the dream 
sequence idea or the the fact that this is has a dream quality to it mm-hmm. in that uh, Vince Vaughn's trying to become a dad uh, another character is a dad and is failing at it uh-huh. um, another character the female character has a dad who's just an absolute piece of work and she's the only child of his that sort of made it out and by breaking with her father mm-hmm. uh and the the fourth character has masculinity issues and issues of sexuality and uh, I don't want to spoil it for anybody but it's just, he he's just got issues about manhood that he's questioning very yeah yeah um and he's PTSD from the war so mm-hmm. he's got those issues as well um but uh we see um, the character who's having a problem being a dad has a dream about his dad. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in, in episode three, yes, he does. And then goes to see his actual dad, who's played by Fred Ward. Mm-hmm. Brings his dad some marijuana, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and tells his dad, "I had a dream about you," and the father just blows it off. Yeah. <laughs> A true father-son relationship. That's nice. Let's watch TV. Here's some sports. (laughs) And so, and it's sort of at that point, I'm I'm sitting here thinking, oh great, (laughs) we watched this dream happen Uh for no other reason but to find out that this guy's dad is distant. Right, and and guess what? Here he is being distant. And, and that's, you know, and, and there's a, my, my point is, first of all, it's a very good point. The, the, that, that is a real through line for all these characters. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a way to make this work. This is, you know, we're three chapters into an eight chapter novel is how I look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, there's a chance to turn it around. There's a chance that it's a slow start and it picks up and it, and all of the weirdness that's been sort of left along the road will make sense. We'll all be tied up and like, oh, okay. That's why the badge is there, and that's why the lucite is there, and that's why this thing happened. Um, but uh, when we were talking about this portion of our show, it, it is interesting to compare and contrast the weirdness of this show and the weirdness of Mr. Robot. Yeah. Um, yeah. The yeah. weirdness of this show makes you wonder why the hell the writer did that. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that, that's Jesus, really? We're going to be, oh, I don't want to go back to this bar. <laughs> There's one patron and everyone wants to kill themselves. It makes the bar in The Shining look like Studio 54. You know, <laughs> it's, it's just awful. It's green and washed out. It's like something out of The Matrix. And it's just full of, full of one depressing or two depressing people who are listening to uh, the worst, most depressing song you could imagine. Emo folk music. Yeah, yeah. forever. Yeah. You know, it's just, this is, oh, this is what hell looks like. In Mr. Robot, there's a lot of weirdness, but at no point do I think, oh, what the hell is the writer doing? It's like, oh, this is really interesting. Yep. I wonder where this is going. The, you have, and you, everything fits. Yes. Everything goes together. There's, and, and part of it is you're really looking at it through one character's eyes. Yes, you are. And True Detective... I don't know whose point of view I'm supposed to be adopting mm-hmm. at any in any scene. Um, and and both of them use uh, you know an old unreliable narrator trope. Yeah, what you are yeah. looking at could be a complete hallucination. It could yep. be partially true, etc. Yep. That you legit. keep asking when we're looking at Ro- Mr. Robot. Is anyone else interacting with this character? Because right. maybe he's just imagining this, yeah. or maybe he's in on drugs, or maybe 
And yeah, it's the unreliable narrator, absolutely. And that's and Poe getting back to Poe to close out this section. Poe used that all the time. All of his narrators, virtually all of his narrators, were insane, mm-hmm. and they would tell you they you know, they were a direct address to you. I mean, this really is a, a straight up parallel to something like Mister Robot uh, in the Telltale Heart. Um, the narrator is saying, "You who know me so well," is directly addressing the audience uh, and telling them that I'm not insane. I just hear things. I hear lots of things. I hear everything in heaven and in hell. Yeah. And like, oh, God, he's nuts. Oh, that's so sad. And then you, you're never sure what to believe. You're off balance in just the way the author intended you to be off balance. That's the point. It should be a little bit disorienting if the author has you by the hand and is, and is good at taking you through the story. I get the sense if this this version of True Detective, this season, it's just weirdness for the sake of weirdness. And they might turn it around, but that, in my opinion, is why it's failing. It doesn't understand the the root of what it wants to be. It wants to be a gothic horror story. And there are certain ways to make that work, and they're not using them correctly. And that's why they're not that's why they're failing. Yep. Anyway, that has on been that, this, on this that week, note. This week's episode of How to Watch TV Like a Friggin' Snob by Driftlad. <laughs> You're watching it wrong. You're watching Drift it wrong. <laughs> Happy birthday, beautiful. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. You're so sweet. And yeah, I'm 52. Like you said, a full deck. Full deck. You're playing with <laughs> finally. <a> finally. <laughs> Took a while. I love you. Thank you, and thank you, Dogface Herman. Bye, everyone. <laughs>